just after five o'clock in the morning on the 11th of September 1918, uh, an armistice or a, a ceasefire was signed. It was signed in a French commander's uh, train carriage. Uh, those were the days when uh, French commanders had train carriages rather than uh, anything else. And uh, it was uh, situated south of Paris. And uh, the, the ceasefire was, uh, was signed there. It was signed by representatives of France, of uh, Britain or, uh, and uh, Germany. Um, Germany didn't surrender. It was uh, just an agreement that the guns would fall silent. And it would come into effect six hours later. So it was signed just after five o'clock and 11 o'clock came and uh, the guns on the Western Front uh, uh, fell silent. Four years of hostilities had preceded it um, and 17 million died. Just take that in. 17 million died. History is full of warfare. History is full of territorial disputes, of religious disputes, of uh, greed and ambition. But the legacy of World War I had a slightly different uh, flavour to it. I'm going to read um, uh, from a book by John Keegan. He's a military historian. And, uh, and he says this. In November 1918, the German high command were confronted with incontrovertible evidence that they had tried their soldiers too hard and so they treated for an armistice. The truth was that all the combatant states, that's all the different countries involved, they had tried their soldiers too hard. The ordeal had been as much self-inflicted as imposed. The populations that had embraced the outbreak of 1914 with such enthusiasm had dispatched their young men to the battlefronts in the, the beliefs that they would win not only victories but glory and that their return with laurels would justify all the trust they had invested in the culture of universal service and commitment to warriordom. The First World War exploded that illusion. Every man a soldier. The philosophy which underlay conscription politics. It rested on a fundamental misunderstanding of the potentiality of human nature. John Keegan uh, talks previously in his book about the uh, idea of the, the warrior, you know, this guy that sort of takes on all odds and is a champion and, and comes back kind of lifted on his shoulders. Perhaps uh, you can think of sort of King David after sort of slaying Goliath, this idea that there was glory to be had in the fight. The First World War changed that. The methods of killing became industrial. 17 million people died. And the scale of war was vast and unseen previously. 
the horrors of war, which people had kind of marginalised in their minds with the idea of warrior chiefs coming home, suddenly they were exposed and saw it in ways it had never been seen before. And there was a, a collective recognition that the First World War was an abomination. A year later, in 1919, King George V held a banquet. What is it with kings and banquets, eh? Uh, Held a banquet uh, for the French president, invited the French president over, and it was uh, in honour of the French Republic. And uh, uh, so they kind of feasted in in kind of celebration for that that moment of the guns falling silent. Uh, There was a South African... Uh, idea of holding two minutes silence for people that had fallen and Britain adopted that. They, they, we started practicing the two minute silence and, and we had it this morning. In 1921, so just a couple of years later, um, poppies, these flowers that had flourished on the battlefields of Flanders and uh, appeared in this war poem, they began to be adopted as a sign of this armistice, of this sign, of ceasefire, of this horrors of war and the uh, sort of remembrance of these uh, fallen uh, servicemen. 30 years later, and I find this incredible, and it's still, um, it's hard to take in. 30 years later, this celebration of Armistice Day on the 11th of uh, November it was moved to the Sunday. You're like, oh, okay, you know, I, I can understand. Um, you, you want it perhaps when everyone's gathered in, in worship. You know, Britain was uh, a, a more of a church-going uh, uh, people then. Uh, but it was moved so that they could make more bombs during the week because they were at war again in the Second World War. They moved Armistice Day and its celebration so that they could make more bombs in the factories. So in England, the church state, the uh, the state church, Church of England, it became increasingly associated with this Remembering of Armistice Day and these remembering of the fallen servicemen and women. Often, it's Anglican Christian services that provide the context for minutes silence. And round the country today, bishops stand with generals with all their medals and with servicemen and women in all their combat fatigues, and they take their wreaths of poppies, and they lay them down at points where they remember people that died. This is a thing that has uh, uh, gone on in, in Britain for many years, and it's something that many people in the UK will honour. We've come across people in this church um, who's kind of first association with church was uh, to remember uh, uh, the fallen service men and women. And the question is, 
with all that backstory, what place has this, and I want you to look at that scene, what place has that in Christian worship? What have we got to do with that? What are we to do with it? Are we to embrace it? Are we to denounce it? Are we to ignore it? Well, before thinking of our time and place right now, I want to go back to the origins of Christianity and of our faith. Uh, uh, Scripture um, is full of eyewitness accounts of of how the Bible, um, of how Christians first lived. And uh, uh, just before Jesus came on the scene, there was this guy called John the Baptist. And uh, in Matthew 14, and you don't need to turn to it, this famous prophet uh, takes on a sort of national importance. He speaks against the immorality of those in power. There are people in charge and they are doing outrageous things and he denounces them very publicly. He denounces those in power and so what happens? He is arrested and then he becomes a victim of politics and intrigue and he is executed. In John 19 we read of Jesus and we read that he is arrested too. The military come against him. The religious elite uh, have decided that this rabbi is a threat to their power base and so they instruct and lead the military to go and arrest him. And what do these soldiers do? I think they go beyond the call of duty and they mock Jesus and they torture him and ultimately these Romans are these Roman soldiers are involved in his execution. In Acts 16 we have Paul and Silas and they come and there is this slave who is tormented and they bring healing and freedom and liberty and you can't but imagine everyone thinking, oh, fantastic, isn't that great? These guys have brought some good news to this person that is really struggling. But what happens is people made money out of that slavery, people made money out of that bondage, and they were not happy that Paul and Silas disrupted their uh, financial income. And so what happens is commerce speaks to the armed forces and these two disciples of Jesus are arrested. And the soldiers, again, what do they do? They strip them, they torture them and they lock them up in the highest security possible. So again and again you find in uh, uh, the first century you find the military... And the armed forces connected with the powers that be and you find poor decisions being made by those in charge. Earlier I read from uh, the book uh, History of Warfare by John Keegan. Uh, John Keegan also says this. The great men of power 
who seek to change the nations they belong to usually are pretty terrible people. It is almost a universal fact that power goes to people's heads. If you've ever met a low-level civil servant who's got a little bit of power and then they tread all over you when, they're trying to, uh, uh, um, when you're trying to get your point across, um, you've suffered a little bit of that. They get a little bit of power and think they are somehow uh, you know, high and mighty and in charge and you need to bow before them. Well, that goes all the way up the chain, all the way up the chain of command to the very top. The people in charge of things often become obsessed with maintaining and sometimes strengthening their power. They become a little bit paranoid that everyone's off to get, to get them. And often other people are, to, are out to get them because they want power too. And they want to increase their power as well. They want to become charge of more. They want to become more wealthy, more responsible, uh, and have their uh, uh, domain widen. Now, this can mean that you're on the phone call with a low-level civil servant and they just give you trouble because you haven't filled in form P239 uh, and you've filled in the wrong form and, and they get all uh, upset about it. Uh, sometimes it just means a bit of propaganda and, and you'll have uh, sort of the Home Office produce propaganda and you'll have other uh, states produce propaganda that sort of suggests their way of doing things is the right way. Sometimes this means people fiddling their expenses. They think, that, you know what, I want to uh, get more money than I deserve and, uh, and so I'm going to sort of change things and warp things to get that. And we've seen it amongst our MPs in, in Britain as well. They've sort of fiddled their expenses. But this increases with power as well. This can lead to everything from assassinations to widespread bloodshed. You know, uh, World War I was all about empires clashing and the fading of one empire and the rising of another. It wasn't about truth or morality. It wasn't about uh, religion or freedom. It was about empires. When such powerful folk meet Jesus and his followers, they encounter people who are moral and who like truth and who look to serve God and other people. And this is a frame of reference that they struggle with. Powerful men get upset and unsettled when they meet true Christians. Because it is not how they think and their power base is disturbed by people that do that. I mean, what would happen if everyone loved each other? I mean, just blows your minds if you're in charge of police and the military, if everyone just got along. What are you going to do? And so Christianity has a long and venerable tradition of martyrs. People who don't have a vested interest in the state and speak out and get killed for it because they are rocking the boat. 
The whole book of Revelation is written cryptically. I don't know whether you've ever read Revelation, but it is weird, some of it. And you can look at it and go, what on earth is going on here? And some crackpots have taken some crazy ideas out of it. But basically, the book of Revelation is written cryptically because it is written to Christians who were being oppressed by the powers that be. And they wanted, the Christians wanted to encourage these other Christians. And God wanted to encourage other Christians through the writing of John. But they didn't want to upset and alarm the powers that be. And so they wrote this kind of coded language that the Christians would understand, but the Roman authorities wouldn't. So that was kind of the first century and the state and the military and the armed forces. Now, over time... Those wielding political power have realised that killing Christians doesn't always work, okay? It just makes them more enthusiastic for their cause and their love of Jesus suddenly becomes really important to them. If you are under threat of persecution, suddenly you realise, I am going to put all my baskets, uh, all my eggs in Jesus' basket because all the other baskets are bankrupt and are going nowhere. But the powers that be realise that they can do things differently. Over the last 2,000 years, what the authorities have decided to do are flatter Christians. And, they are, and Christians are flattered, and what it does is it tames us. We start not causing a fuss like Jesus and John the Baptist and the apostles and the disciples. Suddenly, when they flatter us, we don't make so much noise. Our God-given passion for justice, love and peace, it is diluted and it falls away. Suddenly, we become looking a little less like Jesus as the state says the nice things about us. If the church looks more like a government department than a group of freedom fighters, I think Christianity has lost its way. If we look more like part and parcel of those in charge, rather than a voice of protest and a voice of freedom and a voice of love and peace, then I think we have lost our way. Now, I'm not saying that Christians can't have influence in politics and can't be rich and powerful. It can be a good thing for individual Christians to have prominence. Because what they can do, they can use their wealth and influence for good. They can help the poor, they can promote justice, and they can obstruct evil. Slavery abolition, public health, and the welfare state all have Christian 
fingerprints on. Okay, so all these things Christians have been able to influence for good. This is another quote from the historian I read from earlier. It says this, It is a necessary quality of a diplomat or a politician that he will compromise. Uncompromising politicians or diplomats get you into the most terrible trouble. This military historian, John Keegan, is considering idealists and visionaries. You know, if you have got a drum to bang and a cause to fight for, you don't compromise and you seek out your purpose, come what may. You know, you are going to achieve your goal, come hell or uh, high water. Now, if this is the essence of politics... Can the church of Christ align itself with that? Can the church, the body of Christ, come alongside, Christi- uh, come alongside politicians and say, yeah, we are one with you, knowing that the purpose and uh, means by which politicians uh, um, carry on their business is through compromise? And I think... We have a case in point with Remembrance Sunday. By catering for this moment where we remember the service people that have died, by allowing it to have a moment in church services, what we can do, we can elevate patriotism and the glory of war in this space we can say these things are good and I'm not sure we should have any part to say about that now I will cheer on the England team in football in the Euros and in the World Cup and I will hope that our soldiers, wherever they are, come home safely. However, I don't think the celebration of the nation-state nor the championing of the military has any place in a church that bases itself on the Bible and the teachings of Jesus. Some of you never thought about it. Some of you still didn't care, couldn't care less. Some of you are not sure about it and some of you will be opposed to this idea. But I'm just leading you through my thought process with just regarding this phenomenon of Remembrance Sunday. Violence, which is what the armed forces are there for, and division, which is what nationality and patriotism and nation-states are there for, are the opposite of God's plan for humanity. When Jesus comes again, there'll be peace and there'll be a single people. Pentecost was all about eroding the differences between the people and their language. It was reversing that kind of curse of the Tower of Babel where everyone started talking other languages. 
Let's go on. So what should we do? What can we say? How do we act? And I think, and I will always think, that it's good to go back to our Saviour and his followers as recorded in Scripture. If you have a Bible, you can finally turn to Luke chapter 3. says this in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. John the Baptist said to the crowds coming out to be baptised of him, you brood of vipers. I don't think anyone can um, accuse John of being a lackey for the state or being, uh, you know what, uh, um, sort of wishy-washy. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can rise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's saying, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're in. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors. And these were people that helped the oppression of Rome on Israel. And they said that. So they are conspirators against Israel almost. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And you're hoping John the Baptist would say, lay down your pen. Give up the cause of Rome. Champion Israel's nation nation and its independence. What does John the Baptist say? He says, don't collect any more than you are required to. It's quite different to what we may say to people that seem to perpetuate oppression. And then some soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he replied, go in glory, God blesses the army. No, he doesn't say that. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. John is clearly talking to people who are in positions of power in bureaucracy and in the military. And what does he say to them? He says, share your stuff, be honest, act with integrity, and have contentment. It's interesting words. What opportunity he had to speak into different lives. And this is what he chose to say. And more or this is what God has decided to preserve for us today in Scripture. John may have said more to these guys But this is what God has decided that is preserved in our Bibles. So it must be helpful, mustn't it? The answer is yes. Okay, but there we go. Um, Let's move on to Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 7. Says this in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. So a centurion 
is uh, a, a slightly higher up soldier who is in charge of a load of men whose job it is to keep order and fight and uh, suppress Israel uprising and uh, um, sort of be that sort of wooden stick to keep people in line. And it was to a pagan empire, remember. So Israel was under the... Israel, this wonderful people of God, was under the uh, um, charge of Rome, which was not a Christian empire. It goes this. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to ask him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself are a man under authority, with uh, soldiers under me. These are soldiers, okay? They're not just uh, ticket inspectors, and they're not even sort of PCSOs. They're soldiers, okay? So their job is to imprison, their job is to execute, and their job is violence, I myself and a man under authority with soldier under me and I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes and I say to my servant do this and he does that when Jesus heard this he was amazed and turning to the crowd following him he said I tell you I have not found with great faith I have not found such great faith in Israel this guy is part of the bloodthirsty mechanism to suppress the people who would reject Rome's rule and yet Jesus says he's got faith then the, man, the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Jesus does a miracle without even speaking, without even meeting the centurion and without preaching a sermon against something. Jesus encounters this servant of the state and he sees, despite all the detritus, he sees... Faith, and he applauds it, and he brings healing into his life. And I really like that. Jesus could never have approved of this centurion's brutality and all the different decisions that he had to make. But Jesus did speak goodness and life over him. Turn to Acts chapter 16. says this in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas, and they've been arrested for freeing that person that, that was uh, uh, in bondage. About, Paul and, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer, so it's another servant of the state and someone that is involved in the beating and imprisonment of Jesus' disciples. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open he drew his sword because he's a violent man and was about to kill himself because that's how he knows how to operate by violence. 
He's about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Because he knows that in his chain of command, if you slip up, the consequences are uh, execution. So this is a violent time we're living, they were living in. And so he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. And Paul said, don't harm yourself, we are all here. This is the guy that beat him and put him in the innermost prison. Okay. If it was me, it would be very tempted to go, oh, oh, don't do that. And perhaps a little quietly mumble it. And uh, then the problem takes care of itself, doesn't it? But Paul shouts, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Uh, They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. That's the gospel. That's Jesus loves you. That's Jesus came. That's Jesus showed us the right way to live. That's Jesus died on the cross. That's Jesus rose again and seated the right hand of the Father. uh, And uh, uh, the Holy Spirit's available to all. That's what the word of the Lord is. Luke's using this short term, short hand for it. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Paul and Silas had been a victim of cruelty and injustice at this jailer's hands. The jailer's about to kill himself. They stop that. And they speak about Jesus to him and all his family. And they're baptised. And they are filled with joy, which is a kind of a sign that his belief was authentic. And so I want us this morning, still morning just, to hear these interactions of Jesus, John the Baptist, and those early Christians with the state and the military and those in, with civic responsibility. All of them, they spoke grace and love and power as well. You know, they didn't just go, God loves you. They demonstrated it with uh, uh, miracles. And I think we need to take this on board. Now, so the question is, how on earth do we do this in the 21st century It seems getting a load of scouts in to sort of salute the Union Jack or get a load of soldiers and Navy personnel in and honour them for being in positions of violence doesn't sound like something that the gospel would recognise. We see the church do it today, but it doesn't seem to resonate with the first century. And so I want to return to some advice by the Apostle Peter. I love what he has to say, because it is a tricky situation we're in. How are we supposed to deal with all these different powers that be? And when other people are choosing particular ways to do it, how should we? So if you've got a Bible, turn to the last passage we're reading today, which is 1 Peter chapter 2. 
So the sort of title of the passage we're going to read to read says this, living godly lives in a pagan society. That's us. That's what we're doing. You know, Jesus hasn't come and uh, our laws aren't all godly and things are happening in the Houses of Parliament and beyond that Jesus doesn't love. So this is us. So we should listen up to what Peter has to say about how Christians should live in a pagan society. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is going to be slightly troubling. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who, sent, who were sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. The emperor at the time Peter's writing was not some sort of benevolent, kind old man. This is the Roman emperor who was all about power and violence and subjugation of other peoples and the glory of Rome. And Peter is saying, you submit yourself to that. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as... Anyone read what it says next? Free men. Free people, mine says. Live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honour the emperor. And I think Peter helps us navigate this. How we should react to the state, the military, the uh, person at the post office or um, person at the job centre or other civic uh, person that we encounter. First and foremost, we fear God. That's kind of our central premise. That's the bit you start with, okay? We need to revere God. And that involves your prayer, That involves praise and that involves Bible reading. That is you in relation to God and making sure that relationship is squeaky clean. When we fear God, when he is our number one passion, Jesus' values that he lived out on earth, they become our values and our passions. And his values become our values. And they become ingrained on our hearts, and then we live them out. You know, you can't help it. It becomes second nature. And so our first responsibility to love God then is to love our fellow travellers on the way. That's you guys. You're my fellow travellers on the way. You are fellow exiles and foreigners and outcasts. 
This world is not our world. This world is not our destiny. This time and place is not our inheritance. And I think one or two of us can say amen to that. Because that is a pretty good thing. Because this world is imperfect and full of grief and sorrow and violence and inequality. And so we love each other and we make it our purpose to make sure everyone in this room is appreciated. Because we're it. Barbara and Tim and Wendy and David... These are the guys that we show love to and say, you know what, it's not easy being a foreigner and exile and living with completely different values to the power of our time and we're going to look after each other and um, sort of cater for them if we can. And we practice love, you know, we practice love here. We learn how to speak nicely to one another, how to care for one another, how to listen to one another, and how to pray for one another, how to prophesy to one another, and all these different things. And then we become a little bit better equipped to be able to do it out there. If you're rubbish at loving Christians, you're going to be out of practice when you go outside. just missed out a massive connection um, so we are just passing through this world we are pilgrims heading for a perfect city okay so um, this is not the place to feel comfortable and we don't shackle ourselves to any other agency that would kind of inhibit our freedom uh, Peter tells the Christians, to live as free people. And that freedom comes from Christ and that freedom comes from the Holy Spirit. It does not come from the Conservatives or the Labour Party or uh, the Home Office or any other earthly structure. And so we don't sell our freedom for respectability and acceptance. We don't allow our testimony to be eroded by a desire, oh, I wish they would just welcome me into their banqueting halls a little bit more. We are free people and we need to stay as such. And we don't use our freedom to indulge our selfishness either. Go, I'm a free person, I can stay in bed on a Sunday morning and never attend any church meeting or give or never read my Bible because I'm a free person. That is an abuse of the freedom that God expends to us. And so we live with that unique sense of freedom, of independence, of authority, and of purpose. There's no people on earth like followers of Jesus. We are singularly equipped with the Holy Spirit. We are uh, singularly set apart for God's purpose on this earth. And the world is in desperate need of what we have to say and do. And we cannot allow that to be diluted. And we cannot be... uh, uh, distracted from that so that was the bit I missed going back to um, the third thing on sort of Peter's list so um, 
love the family of believers, fear God, and then there's respect everyone and respect the king. The expertise at loving each other that we hone as a fellowship in the home groups, in the prayer meetings, in the times in the calf, in the times we meet in each other's houses and on a Sunday morning, we take that outside and we respect everyone. We love them and are generous to them and are peaceful towards them and are good to them. When, um, when we meet them, we don't devalue them. We don't say, just because you don't belong to my tribe or tongue, that somehow that you're less. God made everyone, and they're all made in God's image, and we need to honour that. So we are good to them, and we also explain the good news. That's part and parcel of what it is to be a Christian. We are generous to them, we give them money and things and our time and our strength, but we give them the gospel as well. We talk about Jesus, we go, hey, do you know where you're going for eternity? Do you know that your life can have meaning and purpose? Do you know that you can know worth from God himself? Do you know there's a great group of people meet at Watfield on Sunday morning that you're going to have a ball with? And so after respecting everyone and being respectful, Peter says it elsewhere, being respectful in how we talk to other people about Jesus, you don't just go, you're going to go to hell very soon, you better sharpen up and uh, obey Jesus. There is a graciousness and a respect there that these are also God's people. Um, They're also made in God's image and uh, uh, I'll call out to them as to have a a degree of deference to them. Lastly, we honour our leaders. We honour our leaders regardless of of their godliness or godlessness. It doesn't matter with their Bible-believing, Pentecostal Christian shouting hallelujah every other word, or blasphemous. We respect them. That's quite a challenge. And it takes some wisdom how to do that as well. Because if they're blasphemous, then they're going to be asking for blasphemous things to be done, and we can't get involved in that. And so we have to work out how on earth we're going to live in a society that has blasphemous rules, uh, but that we are not going to subscribe to. So we don't compromise our love of God or our love of our fellow believers for the respect of the king or everyone else. So today is Armistice Day, the 11th hour past. That is a human construct, okay? It's not divine, it's not scriptural, it's not in the Bible. There's lots of churches outside of Britain that don't celebrate it at all. And when we live in a country that does, we need to think about how we behave towards it. I think it's okay for believers to indulge in it. I'm, I'm not against it. But there is no power in remembering the armed forces that have died. There's nothing scriptural there 
and there's no power there. It took 30 years for the world to go back to war after they started remembering it. So we need to understand that as well as we think about this subject. And there's this temptation that you can align yourselves with people in responsibility that we have no place joining hands with. We need to retain our godly freedom and independence. I think our time is better spent enjoying Jesus, enjoying his Holy Spirit, uh, enjoying the purposes that he set out for us, and celebrating that as a group. And I think that is what Sunday mornings should be about, and, and we get to covet that and not allow anything else in that would distract us from that. Because ultimately, Jesus is the king of peace, and he's going to establish peace on earth. And there is no UN peacekeeper out there that can shine a light on our Lord. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for those, uh, for John the Baptist and Jesus and those first apostles that navigated this relationship with unbelievers and authorities. God, we thank you that they spoke generosity and love and power and ultimately the gospel and, and saw people get bowled over by you. And Lord God, we would mimic them. Lord God, we would copy them. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us live in this pagan society and that we would be good at what the Apostle Peter says, that we would be good at loving you first, that we would be good at loving each other and that we would be good at respecting everyone and uh, uh, even the the, the person in charge of things. Uh, Lord God, and, and I pray that people would see that we are different, that we are foreigners and aliens and exiles in this place, and that by our good deeds and our good words, that they would be drawn not to us or our cause, but to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for your wisdom in this, and uh, we ask for the grace to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.